In a shocking turn of events, former President Donald J. Trump has defeated Nikki Haley in the Republican primaries of Michigan and South Carolina, Haley's home state. And by shocking, I mean totally expected because everyone knows that this is Trump's nomination and the polls have been saying so for months. And so as not to continue milking people and donors for money, which will ultimately lead to nothing, all of the competition has dropped out of the race, all except Nikki Haley, of course. That's left many scratching their heads in wonder. Why won't she drop out? Well, I only see three options, and, and you can decide which one you find the most viable. Okay, so here we go. Number one, she's waiting in hopes that Donald Trump will be legally disqualified in some way, shape, or form, leaving her as the only candidate in the field. Number two, she's demonstrating her determination and perseverance in hopes for making a lasting impression for the next election. Or number three, she wants to roll as much campaign money as she can into a political action committee or a different political fund. Whatever the reason, the money is starting to dry up for her as one of her biggest financiers, the Koch family, halted funding her campaign after Saturday's conclusions in South Carolina. And I would suspect that the Haley campaign will be running on fumes a week from today after next week's Super Tuesday, when 15 states hold their primaries on the same day. If you just couple all this, though, this election news with the impending State of the Union address, which is set for just two days after Super Tuesday on March 7th, and uh, Donald Trump's chances are just ever increasing. Now, speaking of his chances, uh, what is probably one of the biggest days of the primary season is next Tuesday, known as Super Tuesday, because 15 states and one U.S. territory hold their primaries or their caucuses on, all on the same day. The, the delegates totaling 874 in one day. Some of you have asked me who you should vote for, and here's what I'll say. The primary season is your chance to vote with your heart by conviction or by conscience. If you cannot support, for example, Donald Trump as a matter of principle, Tuesday, if you're in one of those 15 states, is your opportunity to vote for somebody else. But when it comes time for the general election, you have to vote to win because there is far too much at stake to stand on principle. I'm Blake Watson, and this is We the Free. One of the best ways you can help our show, other than by sharing the content today, is by picking up some We The Free merch at wethefreeshow.com. You can be the salt and light you were meant to be by wearing the salt and light shirt or by sipping your coffee from the salt and light mug. Or you can support the God Bless America shirt and of course, the classic We The Free Crest tee. We've even got stickers and a Smells Like Freedom candle. That's right. So check out our new merch at wethefreeshow.com. If you heard shrieking or weeping or wailing or gnashing of teeth this past week, it may have been the audible response from the liberals and the radical feminists 
in response to what is certain to be a defining moment in American history. Health officials at the University of Alabama at Birmingham said earlier this week they would pause all in vitro fertilization treatments following a ruling by the Alabama Supreme Court which extended legal protections to frozen embryos used in the procedure of IVF in vitro fertilization. The Daily Wire has the details of the case. The Alabama Supreme Court ruled late last week that frozen embryos should be recognized and protected as unborn children as several couples sue a fertility clinic over the destruction of frozen embryos. In an 8-to-1 ruling, the court said that the state's wrongful death of a minor act applies to frozen embryos because the law protects all children regardless of their location. The justices rooted their decision in the clause of Alabama's constitution that says that the public policy of the state is to uphold the sanctity of unborn life. The ruling came after three couples sued the Center for Reproductive Medicine in Mobile after five frozen embryos from the couples were accidentally destroyed. The lone dissent came from Justice Greg Cook, who criticized the majority decision by saying that it would curtail IVF in the state. And this is why I'm bringing the story up. I think it's pretty easy for Christians to agree that the destruction of an embryo is the destruction of a pre-born human. But there are much further moral and political implications here. Here's what Justice Greg Cook dissented. No court anywhere in the country has reached the conclusion the main opinion reaches. And the main opinion's holding almost certainly ends the creation of frozen embryos through in vitro fertilization, IVF, in Alabama, he said. So he's saying that not only will this decision give legal precedent for legal recourse against damaged embryos in the process of IVF, but that this decision creates precedent for dismantling IVF across the board. Now, why would he say that or, or reach that conclusion? Well, let's consider the implications and, and more importantly, the moral question or questions this poses. First, let's begin with a brief explanation of in vitro fertilization. The Mayo Clinic explains this procedure as, in vitro fertilization, also called IVF, is a complex series of procedures that can lead to a pregnancy. It's a treatment for infertility, a condition in which you can't get pregnant after at least a year of trying for most couples. And the statistics demonstrate that roughly 2% of births per year are a result of this process. Let's continue. During in vitro fertilization, mature eggs are collected from ovaries and fertilized by sperm in a lab. Then a procedure is done to place one or more of the fertilized eggs, called embryos, in a uterus, which is where babies develop. So a woman undergoes some type of hormonal therapy or treatment to mature the eggs within the ovaries. The eggs are collected. The semen of the father is collected. They fertilize one or more eggs, as they said, outside the womb, which is what we call conception, creating what is scientifically and medically known as an embryo or a zygote. In other words, the embryonic stage is the very first stage of life. After they've created numerous embryos, some, not all of them, are placed in the woman's uterus, 
Once there, the hopes are that at least one of them, what's called a, a blastocyst, will implant itself inside the uterine wall. And, and if that's successful, this is where the baby begins to truly take shape and develop. But what happens if numerous embryos implant? Well, we'll come back to that. Let's finish covering the process. IVF can be done using a couple's own eggs and sperm, or it may involve eggs, sperm, or embryos from a known or unknown do donor. In some cases, a gestational carrier, someone who has an embryo implanted in the uterus, might be used. The last part is what's known as surrogacy, or when a woman carries someone else's baby. Now, in the initial process of IVF, numerous embryos are created and some, not all, are used for the procedure. So what happens to the rest of them? Well, a lot of them are abandoned and ultimately destroyed. A minority of them are donated or used for research and in the latter case, their destruction is once again the end result. So how often does this happen? Well, apparently a lot. In fact, fertility clinics are often left with unwanted or, as they say, abandoned embryos in mass. NBC News reported on this back in 2019 saying, the dilemma is an unanticipated and unwelcome byproduct of the considerable advances made in assisted reproductive technology in recent years, causing concern among bioethicists, attorneys, religious groups, and the medical community. The reasons patients choose to abandon embryos vary. Storage fees for frozen embryos typically run from $500 to $1,000 a year and can climb even higher depending upon the clinic. Dr. Arthur Kaplan, one of the nation's leading bioethicists and a professor at the New York University Medical School, stated there are at least 90,000 frozen embryos considered abandoned in the U.S. Other studies indicate the number is much higher, possibly in the millions. Though clinics have different definitions, an abandoned embryo generally refers to a situation in which a patient has not paid storage fees related to a frozen embryo for five or more years and fails to respond to letters and calls from the clinic. Some clinics consider embryos abandoned after as little as a year. Then later in the article, NBC interviewed a recipient or a participant of IVF, a woman named Sarah Raber. She began treatments in 2008 after several rounds, Raber and her husband had two sons in 2010 and in 2012 in New York. Both boys were conceived through the transfer of fresh embryos into Raber's uterus. Other embryos were frozen during her treatments. So she began the IVF process in 2008, but in 2010 and 2012, she used, as they said, fresh embryos. So what happened to all the embryos from 2008? Raber said she had the option of using frozen embryos when she began trying for a second child, but opted to use the new eggs instead. I knew I wanted to have the frozen embryos for a rainy day, Raber explained. They were my insurance policy. In other words, in case these fresh embryos didn't work out, I'll use some of those that we've got on ice in the back room. But the story continues. Raber said she tried to use one frozen embryo to have a third child in 2014, but suffered a painful miscarriage. That's when she struggled with the decision of what to do with her five remaining embryos. So after a terrible miscarriage, 
Sarah was done with the frozen children, but didn't know what to do with them. She said, Even though I knew I was done procreating, it was very hard to make the final decision, Raber said. For months, I sat on the paperwork. The clinic gave Raber four choices. She could continue to pay storage fees for her frozen embryos, donate them to another woman, authorize the clinic to destroy them, or give them to the lab for research purposes. So paying the storage fees, donating them to someone else, and notice the last two options. Authorize the clinic to destroy them or donate them for research, which again, what happens when they're done with the research. Ultimately, Raber donated her embryos to her fertility clinic's lab for research purposes. I didn't want to donate them to a stranger, Raber explained. I felt like if I donated the embryos to a stranger, it would be our child out there that we weren't raising. Well, that's interesting she came to that conclusion. If donating them to a stranger feels like giving your child to someone else, why doesn't keeping them on ice feel like freezing them? Or donating them to a lab feel like a human experiment? Or destroying them feel like abortion or murder? The National Institutes of Health reports that 2.5 million IVF cycles have produced about a half a million babies. What does that tell you? That means a staggering 80%, 80% of embryos are indefinitely frozen or they're destroyed. And that's the case if only one embryo is created in the IVF process. But the truth is, on the, a usual basis, there are num numerous embryos created in the process, meaning that the, the statistic probably far underreports the truth. Now, I've spelled out the ethical dilemma of IVF, but there are more moral dilemmas and political ramifications associated with this, especially for us as Christians. Now, this is me looking forward, not looking back, not punching down, not judging anyone for mistakes they may have made. I, I understand the incredibly sensitive issues of infertility. I've known people and friends who have had this problem. I have ministered to people like this. This is a conversation about the present looking forward. But I'm going to come back to this issue of infertility later. People use IVF for a number of reasons. The main and obvious reason is infertility, but there are others, and we'll talk about more of them in just a minute. But for example, a woman could have fallopian tube damage, ovulation disorders, um, endometriosis, uterine fibroids, which are tumors on the uterus. Um, a man can have issues with sperm, but the science and technology of IVF is a means to an end, okay? Whereas the end is children and growing families, and, and that end is wonderful. Children are a blessing from the Lord, and, and most advanced societies are under-producing. We're not having enough kids. However, and, and I want you to hold on to this, because we're going to, we're going to totally flesh this out, the ends don't justify the means. Now, when I, all the stuff that I'm about to say is for the Christians listening. Okay, so if, if you're not a follower of Christ, you may want to skimp ahead 20 minutes or so. So I'll give you just a second. 
And all right, now that they're gone, here, here are the moral problems posed by IVF as, as we've understood it. First of all, from the very beginning, the very start, there, there is a moral problem in obtaining the materials necessary for an embryo. And again, I'm, I'm talking about Christian morality here, which we believe to be the true and ultimate morality, that which comes from the holiness of God. The eggs are medically extracted from the mother, but how is the semen and the sperm obtained from the father? By masturbation, which is undoubtedly autosexual, a perversion of God's sexual standards. Secondly, as Christians, we believe that life begins at the moment of conception. When the embryo or the, the zygote is created, it's a person. And, and we'll talk more about this in a moment, but we're, I'm, I'm actually going to show you that, that we're a person before that moment. But in IVF, a person is basically created in a Petri dish. Some of them are frozen, which, in my opinion, is immoral in itself. But it's at this stage that most clinics can tell you all sorts of information about the embryo. You know, this one is turning out to be a boy or a girl. This one seems to have some uh, genetic issues. Uh, and like flipping through a catalog, parents can choose which embryos to work with or destroy. Here's pro-life activist Lila Rose talking about this. Advances with IVF has permitted parents to have a screening process where they can make sure that the baby that they're bringing into the world has desirable traits and has no genetic defects. So what happens in many clinics is these children are subjected to genetic testing to ensure they fit the parameters of what the parents want. You see this a lot even before the fertilization of that embryo when the parents, if it's like a same-sex couple, is shopping for an egg or a sperm of another individual and so you actually see them setting the bar for what they want in that egg donor per se. So these are placed within the uterus. In some, not all cases, the game here is let's see which ones take. Now, let's say that a woman has three embryos that implant within the uterus, meaning she's going to have three babies at once. They're technically not triplets. Most of these cases go through something called selective reduction. Here's Lila Rose talking about that. Tragically, in many cases, there's some famous stories out there of women who actually share in their Slate article writing about how, oh, I implanted three, I only wanted one or two, the babies all took, and now the doctor's telling me it's dangerous to have triplets, so I'm going to selectively reduce, is what they use, the, the language they use. Selective reduction is the euphemistic language that's used to talk about these babies. And what that is, is an abortion, often a second trimester abortion, because that's kind of when you know whether they'll take or not, so to speak. If they've made it through the first trimester, that's when most miscarriages happen. So they're in the second trimester. It's like, oh, the baby hasn't died yet. It's still alive. Dang it. We better selectively reduce. And so what is legal in this country is you can go in and a baby that you intentionally conceived, this wasn't like a one night stand and an accidental conception and you're like, I don't want more responsibility. You paid money to conceive this new little life 
And now you think, oh, I don't want this baby anymore because it was supposed to die and it didn't. So I'm gonna go in and kill it. I'm gonna go in and abort it. So that's selective reduction, which is otherwise known as abortion or to us as murder. It's in this same exact stage that parents in IVF or parents through a natural pregnancy will selectively reduce or murder babies with Down syndrome or Edward syndrome. All of this would have made Margaret Sanger extremely proud. All of this to say, our second moral problem is that of murder or the, the biblical taking of an innocent life. This is why Christians, and I mean the real followers of Christ, are completely 100% opposed to abortion, which is a difficult subject to talk about, admittedly. But our moral position must extend to the embryos, which are humans in their earliest living stages, the very beginning. So we have the immorality of, of masturbation, the unethical freezing and study of embryos, cryopreservation, and the murder of these pre-born people. Then you have the issues of surrogacy. Personally, I see two problems here. The first is in a real marriage with a man and a, and a woman who cannot conceive, uh, they, they try IVF, and let's say the woman is physically unable to carry a child, and the couple seeks a surrogate mother. Another woman effectively rents out her womb, raises the child within herself for nine months, gives birth to the baby, and then never sees the child again. There's just something wrong and, and totally unnatural about that. But the second issue, and the worst problem, is that of homosexual couples shopping around to pay certain people for her eggs and, and his sperm so they can create in a laboratory the most ideal child possible. They, they pay a woman to grow and give birth to the baby, and then that child never knows either his biological mother or the woman who gave birth to him or her, not to mention growing up in a sex, homosexual household. And there's even some people, some single people, who will do this as well. There's so many immoral problems and slippery slopes with IVF and surrogacy. Um, Albert Moeller Jr., who we'll quote extensively later, he wrote the following, Thanks to IVF, the entire process can now be made into a market for babies as commodities, with sperm and eggs and embryos and rental wombs available in a dark market. Okay, so you've heard me say a lot, and you've heard me quote lots of people, but now let's look at God's Word. Here's the main point of the day, and this is something my pastor, Dr. Rocky Ramsey, says. Before you're a fetus or a baby, you are a person. John MacArthur wrote this, God's power is magnified in the development of human life before birth. In other words, in the eyes of God, you are a person before you're even physical. Look at this scripture in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. This is the very first thing that God says to Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So not only is God the giver of life, but he knows us before we are physically fashioned. King David expressed pretty much the same thing in Psalm 139, 13 through 16. 
For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. That Hebrew word there for unformed substance is golem, which means embryo. And in the later Hebrew or the the Aramaic, it means unfinished vessel. King David also said, And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So Paul expresses something very similar in Galatians 1.15, saying, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, and called me through His grace, was pleased, and he goes on from there, but the point is that God Himself recognizes us as a person with life before us prior to our being physical. And this was understood by even the most uh, liberal founding fathers like Thomas Jefferson, who wrote about natural law or God-given liberties in the Declaration of Independence. You've, You've heard this a million times. Thomas Jefferson wrote, We hold these truths to be self-evident. They're obvious. That all men are created equal. They're created. That they're endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In other words, God, the Creator, gives us the right to life. And Jefferson understood, as we as Christians understand, that life is an unalienable right, meaning the government can't take that right away from you. Parents can't take that right away from their children. And even earlier than Jefferson, John Locke understood that you don't even have the right to take your own life. Life is the basis of everything. It is the basic right above all rights and undergirding every other right. Now, we can talk about the forfeiture of that right to life and capital punishment some other time, or you can read John Locke's Two Treatises of Government to remedy this seeming contradiction. But the point I make for all Christians is that our defense of life and the unborn must extend to the earliest stages of human development and oppose in vitro fertilization. And, and the murder of these children in the embryonic stage. Now, don't worry, I'm, I'm going to get to alternatives. But the Alabama Supreme Court ruled that extra uterine children outside of the womb and their expiration were not exempted from state laws covering wrongful deaths of minors, and therefore they enjoy legal protection. R. Albert Moeller, Jr., president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, had this to say on the ruling. In a stunning development, the Alabama Supreme Court just declared that IVF embryos are legally defined as children under the state's law and constitution and thus deserve protection whether or not they reside in a woman's womb. The 8-to-1 decision has set off a firestorm, with many predicting the end of IVF procedures in the state. But there's another firestorm that still needs to happen, and that will require pro-life Americans to answer some hard questions many have been working overtime to avoid. In incredibly clear language, Justice J. Mitchell stated, All parties to these cases, like all members of this court, agree 
that an unborn child is genetically is a genetically unique human being whose life begins at fertilization and ends in death. No one said this issue was easy or unemotional, but Alabama's highest court has just put it on the nation's agenda, and it falls squarely on the Christian conscience. The court's reasoning is unassailable. A human embryo is a human being, wherever that embryo may be found. If that is not true, the pro-life movement has been lying. If it is true, then evangelicals had better make certain our affirmation of human dignity and the sanctity of human life is clear. All unborn children are children. And this leads us to the political ramifications of all this. The reason why the liberals are losing it over the state ruling is the legal precedent it potentially creates for further destroying the murderous industry of abortion, which is an incredibly wonderful thing. Lila Rose said the following, This decision made by the Alabama Supreme Court affirms the scientific reality that a new human life begins at the moment of fertilization. Each person from the tiniest embryo to an elder nearing the end of his life has incalculable value that deserves and is guaranteed legal protection. Albert Muller Jr. also said, Critics charged that the decision would shut down all IVF procedures in the state and that the effects would ripple out, threatening far more than IVF. Some on the left immediately charged that this would further complicate pro-abortion arguments. They are surely right, and thankfully so. The hard thing is that many who consider themselves to be pro-life have refused to extend their own logic to the huge moral crisis posed by IVF procedures. The blunt and unavoidable question is this. Do pro-lifers really believe that unborn children are children? If not, we have been lying. If we really do believe this, how do we reckon with millions of frozen children locked in an indefinite freeze and destined for destruction due to IVF procedures? Well, I believe that we would be serving God's will by petitioning our local politicians to enact similar measures and by encouraging others to seek alternatives. For example, there's something called NAPRO technology treatment, which is short for natural procreative technology. It's an innovative method that respects the natural biological processes of fertility and instead seeks to optimize fertility by examining genetic history, menstrual and fertility cycles, hormones, etc. It's fertility care instead of fertility control. There's also domestic infant adoption, adopting a newborn baby uh, who has been orphaned for whatever reason. There's international adoption. There's fostering or fostering to adoption with older kids who are quite frankly unwanted by their parents. And finally, there's snowflake adoption, which is adopting the embryos that we've just talked about, that have just been left to ultimate destruction. All of these are infinitely morally superior to in vitro fertilization because, again, the ends do not justify the means. And listen, children are an amazingly wonderful thing. I've got two of my own and we want more children. They aren't the problem here. The kids are not the problem. 
any child that has ever been produced by any means is a blessing. And that goes for kids produced by IVF, kids produced by premarital sex, kids produced by something as awful and horrible as rape or as inappropriate as incest. It doesn't matter. Children are a blessing from God that must be protected. Even the ones who are made in a petri dish or the ones that are just forming in the womb. Now, we have two leading candidates for president, President Biden and President Trump. Let's see what both of them had to say on this specific ruling. President Biden said, The disregard for women's ability to make these decisions for themselves and their families is outrageous and unacceptable. Make no mistake, this is a direct result of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. So just... Remember that connection that he's trying to make there. Here's a we the free fact check for the president. Alabama banned abortion in 2019, three years before Roe v. Wade would be overturned. This ruling is simply a logical expansion of something that they cited in that court ruling, the the wrongful death of a minor act, which has been around for years. But Mr. President, look at what it says. And if you can't make out the letters, I'll read it to you. When the death of a minor child is caused by the wrongful act, omission, or negligence of any person, persons, or corporation, or the servants, or agents of either the father or the mother, as specified in section 65390. And that referenced statute is saying, and the remainder of of this statute says, the parents basically have an equal right to commence an action, a legal action, for an injury to their minor child. So, The Alabama Supreme Court is simply saying that these embryos are children too. Therefore, in the specific case of those embryos being destroyed against the wishes of the parents, obviously, they can now take legal recourse against whatever institution they use. In other words, this has nothing to do with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but this very case itself could lead to more problems for the pro-death cult or the pro-choice crowd as Mueller stated. Now, what about the other candidate? A certain Donald Trump who installed the so-called conservative justices on the Supreme Court who ultimately flipped abortion legislation back to the states. What did he have to say on this issue? Under my leadership, the Republican Party will always support the creation of strong, thriving, healthy American families. We want to make it easier for mothers and fathers to have babies, not harder. Like the overwhelming majority of Americans, including the vast majority of Republicans, conservatives, Christians, and pro-life Americans, I strongly support the availability of IVF for couples who are trying to have a precious baby. Well, I guess that makes me the, the underwhelming, all lowercase minority of Americans who thinks IVF is riddled with immorality and bioethical problems. And this is also coming from a person who supports abortion in cases of rape and incest, and and it should be a little bit alarming to you that Trump shares the same opinion as Joe Biden on this. I honestly think that Republicans are failing to realize the political trap being set for them on this issue, and Trump has fallen right into it. They want to make it seem like they're all gung-ho for IVF, but 
it's really about abortion for them because it undermines their whole argument. Again, IVF has moral problems from the very start, and they only multiply out from the beginning. But perhaps with very much regulation, IVF could be fixed of its amoral issues. Until then, I would encourage you to utilize NAPRO technology, adoption, and fostering. Now let's get to the news feed. We've talked about Russia and Vladimir Putin over the last couple weeks. We started by breaking down the whole Tucker Carlson interview last week. We talked about their nuclear-capable spacecraft, the plans about that weapon being leaked. We've talked about the killing of his political opponent, Alexei Navalny. And now we've got some more news that will perplex you even more. Uh, But I have to start by issuing a correction. Last week I said that the U.S. had comparable military equipment to this leaked Russian spacecraft. Well, that's not entirely correct. Since 1967, there's been a treaty literally called the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, which essentially bans any weapons, any weapons in space. Instead, what we have are satellites which are utilized for military support down below. Russia's weapon would be able to destroy these satellites. So you can see the the use. Any nuclear weapon detonated in space could destroy or damage the over 7,000 satellites that are currently in operation, which are critical to things like GPS, phone systems, cough, internet, financial systems, surveillance, and missile defense. Russian state TV showed President Putin this week testing out Russia's brand-new nuclear-capable bomber as a huge flex or display of militaristic strength, Newsmax reports. Russian President Vladimir Putin flew on a modernized 2-160M nuclear-capable strategic bomber on Thursday in a move likely to be seen in the West as a pointed reminder of Moscow's nuclear capabilities. The giant swing-wing plane, codenamed Blackjacks by Military Alliance NATO, is a modernized version of a Cold War-era bomber that the former Soviet Union would have deployed in the event of nuclear war to deliver weapons at long distances. I'm going to continue to tell you about this, but take a look at this image of what they're calling the White Swan. The 2-160M, which has a crew of four, is capable of carrying 12 cruise missiles or 12 short-range nuclear missiles and can fly 1,200 kilometers or 7,500 miles nonstop without refueling. Russia's nuclear doctrine sets out the conditions under which a Russian president would consider using a nuclear weapon. Broadly, as a response to an attack using nuclear or other weapons of mass destruction, or to the use of conventional weapons against Russia when the very existence of the state is put under threat. If that's true, then this is simply a deterrence from Russia, which is why they're putting it out there for the whole world to see. Now, during a fundraising event last week, President Biden called Putin a crazy SOB, but he said there's a much more important threat to the world. Again, Newsmax is reporting Biden saying, we have a crazy SOB like Putin and others, and we, ha- we always have to worry about nuclear conflict, but the existential threat to humanity is climate, Biden said. 
I know. And, and the Kremlin laughed just as hard as you did. Now, there's one more bit of news from Russia, which is not funny in the least. And that was an assassination attempt on Tucker Carlson. The Economic Times is reporting, A new report claims that a native Russian has been arrested for the attempted assassination of Tucker Carlson. A Russian native, Vasilov Pyotr Alexievich, revealed the plot against Carlson. He said that Ukraine's main directorate of intelligence offered to pay him $4,000 for the task. Alexievich claims that initially he was unaware of the target, but now knows it was Tucker Carlson. Did you catch that? Ukrainian intelligence offered to pay a native Russian money to assassinate an unspecified target. Why would the Ukrainians ever want to do that? Well, I think you know the reason. And if you listen to my analysis of the Tucker-Putin interview, you'd know that the United States government has had its hands dirty in all of this for over a decade. So I wouldn't be surprised to find out if the U.S. instigated this foiled assassination attempt. I can play you the video of his confession, but it's in Russian, so I'll read you the translation. He said, I am Vasilov Pyotr Alexievich, born 1988 from Podolsk. In November 2023, I was recruited by an employee of the GUR of Ukraine, which is the, the main directorate of intelligence, through the internet and was trained to work with special communications, assembling explosive devices. On January 31, from my curator, I received a task to pick up an explosive device from a secret stash and to use it to blow up a car. So the interviewer in the video asks him where the explosive was to be used, and he responded, in the underground parking lot of the Four Seasons Hotel in Moscow, which is, you guessed it, where Tucker was staying in his time there. They asked Alexievich what happened. He says that he was arrested during the preparation stage, and they've even released photos of the explosives that he used, or that he was going to use. Now, I'm sure this is totally unrelated to anything that we've just discussed, but surely you're aware of the fact that one-third of the United States healthcare system was disrupted last week after a massive cyber attack by an unnamed nation-state. Oh, you haven't heard about that? Well, that's probably because you've only heard about the AT&T problem. Well, here's what Not The Bee reports, and, and no, this is not satire. While everyone was worried about the AT&T outage being a potential cyber attack, part of the world's largest healthcare organization went dark in an unprecedented attack by an unnamed nation state. As part of the United Healthcare System, Change Healthcare runs several clinics connects patients to over 800,000 physicians, handles 15 billion healthcare transactions annually, and processes pharmaceutical data for 129 million Americans. In other words, about a third of the country's healthcare system is dependent on this organization being operational. And last week, they went dark after a cyber attack. Here are some of the, the dominoes that fell. TRICARE, the U.S. military's healthcare provider for active duty personnel, said all military pharmacies, clinics, and hospitals worldwide were affected by change healthcare systems going offline. The pharmacies are filling prescriptions manually. Scott Air Force Base in Illinois said in a social media post that its clinic is facing heavy delays with both activation and refill 
for prescriptions. General Leonard Wood Army Community Hospital in Missouri said it would fill prescriptions using an offline process. And here was Change Healthcare's statement on the cyber attack related outage. Once we became aware of the outside threat in the interest of protecting our partners and patients, we took immediate action to disconnect our systems to prevent further impact. The disruption is expected to last at least through the day. So no, this had nothing to do with a solar flare. This was a cyber attack. And again, I'm sure it had absolutely nothing to do with the increasing tension we have with Russia and China and Iran. It must be a purely isolated incident, or maybe it could be a test. You be the judge. For some news closer to home, America's oldest gunmaker is leaving New York after 208 years. Remington is leaving Ilion, New York, and they're moving to LaGrange, Georgia in March. Why would they leave there after you know, such an entrenched history? Jim Morley has the story. Remington said it no longer feels welcomed in left-leaning New York. In a Facebook post, the company's chief executive, Kevin DeArcy, referred to Georgia as a state that supports and welcomes the firearms industry. We are deeply saddened by the closing of this historic facility, DeArcy continued, but maintaining and operating these very old buildings is cost prohibitive, and the New York State's legislative environment remains a major concern for our industry. Elise Stefanik is the U.S. representative for this district of New York. She lays this fault at the feet of the New York governor, Kathy Hochul, saying this, It is because of New York Democrats' unconstitutional gun grab policies that the oldest gun manufacturer in the country has been run out of the state. Hochul must stop her unconstitutional assault on the Second Amendment now. She's referring to the state's legislation, which creates legal grounds for gun manufacturers to be held responsible for or liable for or open a lawsuit in crimes involving the weapons that they have produced. We just talked about two of Elon Musk's businesses doing this last week, but this is yet another example of a big business which employs a lot of people leaving a blue state for its terrible Democrat policies and heading to a red state for its liberty and business-friendly policies. So Remington will end up investing over $100 million in LaGrange, and somewhere close to 800 people will have jobs in Georgia, thanks to the governor of New York. Go figure. Speaking of things leaving, the turtle is stepping down from his place in the Senate. I'm talking about Mitch McConnell, who has served as the Republican leader of the Senate since 2015, and a senator from Kentucky from 1985. He's 82 years old. He's had a couple of bad spells where he's frozen in front of the cameras. Uh, here was his announcement on Wednesday. But now it's 2024. I'm now 82. As Ecclesiastes tells us, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. To serve Kentucky in the Senate has been the honor of my life. To lead my Republican colleagues has been the highest privilege. But one of life's most underappreciated talents 
is to know when it's time to move on to life's next chapter. So I stand before you today, Mr. President, and my colleagues to say this will be my last term as Republican leader of the Senate. I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. However, I'll complete my job. My colleagues have given me until we select a new leader in November and they take the helm next January. I'll finish the job the people of Kentucky hired me to do as well, albeit from a different seat. And I'm actually looking forward to that. So he mentions his age there, but McConnell has been in Congress for something like 39 years. I've talked about this before, but the Heritage Foundation has a website where they score congressmen and women on, on how they vote pertaining to liberty. Well, McConnell's lifetime score is 59 out of 100. So not a great score. And, and the average score for a Senate Republican is 65. And his score for this particular session, like the current session, the 118th Congress, is even lower at 43. So he definitely needs to go. The only credit that I'll give to Mitch is that he hindered Obama from replacing Justice Scalia with the dreadful Merrick Garland. You can see what a disaster he would have been. And then he helped Trump confirm Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Barrett, which you could argue paved the way for some of these great rulings like Roe v. Wade. So thank you, Mitch, for that, but happy retirement. Now let's get Ted Cruz in the chair, who, might I add, has a whopping 92 out of 100 freedom score. Speaking of Supreme Court justices, the Supreme Court just declined to hear a case which involved a Missouri court excusing three jurors who held biblical beliefs about sexuality. Justice Samuel Alito agreed with declining to hear the case, but he warned against this religious test for jury duty. Here's Liz Likens at World News Group, which is a great site, by the way. She says, The case in question, Missouri Department of Corrections v. Gene Finney, involved a dispute in which three jurors were dismissed from hearing an employment discrimination case after voicing that they believed homosexuality is a sin. Jean Finney, a self-identified lesbian, worked as an officer at the Missouri Department of Corrections. She sued the department, claiming that it subjected her to discrimination, retaliation, and a hostile environment because of her sexuality in violation of Missouri anti-discrimination law. While selecting a jury to hear her case, Finney's attorney asked potential jurors if they had attended religious organizations that taught homosexuals shouldn't have the same rights as everyone else because it was a sin with what they did. Several people raised their hands, and the attorney asked them to explain their views. Two potential jurors explained that, yes, homosexuality was a sin, but it was one of many sins. They said that their view wouldn't affect their ability to rule on the case. A sin is a sin, and every one of us here sins, and I don't imagine any of you would deny it, one of the potential jurors said. Homosexuality isn't any worse sin than stealing something. It's all. A sin is a sin. So in case you've never been in a courtroom like this, or you've never done jury duty, 
several people will be called in for jury duty, but the juries will be trimmed down to a much smaller group, a group that the court feels is the least biased in the case at hand. The judge cooperates with the opposing attorneys until the final jury is selected and the rest are dismissed to either go home or to another case. In this case, the plaintiff is suing over discrimination based on her sexual orientation. And in most in, in the most moderate courtroom, her attorney wants to get rid of any potential juror that may be biased against her sexual identity. The judge wants to get rid of bias either way, those that may disagree with her sexuality and those who fully support it. In other words, on, on this specific detail, they prefer a jury that doesn't care about her sexuality, an unbiased jury. Now, what ultimately happened in the case? The selected jury ultimately sided with Finney in 2021, awarding her a total of $275,000 for her sexual discrimination and hostile work environment claims. That's what the original trial covered. And as the department appealed to each superior court, all the way up to the Supreme Court, they were denied in each place. But Justice Alito had this to say. Alito reluctantly agreed with the court's decision to not hear the case, saying the department did not properly preserve an objection to the dismissal. But he raised concerns about the dismissal of the two jurors who said that their view wouldn't impair their ability to decide fairly. Jurors are duty-bound to decide cases based on the law and on the evidence, and a juror who cannot carry out that duty may properly be excused, Alito wrote. But otherwise, I see no basis for dismissing a juror for cause based on religious beliefs. He said this is an issue that future cases should address, and the court's decision to remove jurors based on religious beliefs affects fundamental rights. He added that courts need to be sure to protect fundamental rights, and among these are the right to the free exercise of religion and the right to the equal protections of the law. In other words, this was also discriminatory to dismiss these two potential jurors. Alito said that this case exemplifies the danger he previously anticipated in Obergefell v. Hodges, the 2015 case that legalized same-sex marriage across the country. In his Obergefell dissent, Alito wrote that Americans who do not hide their adherence to traditional religious beliefs about homosexual conduct will be labeled as bigots and treated as such by the government. And guess what? He was absolutely right. And this case is a simple example of that. Ultimately, this will reach the court again, the Supreme Court, and I hope the justices take the side of morality and true divine liberty, the liberty which is conducive to virtue as God and our founding fathers intended. And finally, some breaking news from the world of science. A study has revealed that men and women's brains do work differently. And apparently this is the first time scientists have discovered this. Sarah Napton at The Telegraph reports. The brains of men and women operate differently. Scientists have shown for the first time in a breakthrough that shows sex does matter in how people think and behave. The issue of whether male and female brains are distinct has proven controversial, with some academics arguing it is society rather than biology that shapes divergence. There has never been any definitive proof 
of difference in activity in the brains of men and women. But Stanford University has shown that it is possible to tell the sexes apart based on activity in hotspot areas. They include the default mode network, an area of the brain thought to be the neurological center for self and is important in introspection and retrieving personal memories. The limbic system is also implicated, which helps regulate emotion, memory, and deals with sexual stimulation and striatum, which is important in habit forming and rewards. Experts said the brain differences could influence how males and females view themselves, how they interact with other people, and how they recall past experiences. Dr. Vinod Menon, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford, said, This is a very strong piece of evidence that sex is a robust determinant of human brain organization. Our findings suggest that differences in brain activity patterns across these key brain regions contribute to sex-specific variations in cognitive functioning. And the piece goes on and on from there. So two things about this. They say that there's never been proof of definitive differences between males and female brains. And, and to that, I would say, no, the proof has always been innate in common sense. God created men and women to be absolutely distinct from each other and yet complementary to one another. And this is borne out in this research. But secondly, this, these findings flies in the face of gender ideology. They said the issue of whether male and female brains are distinct has proven controversial with some academics arguing it is society rather than biology that shapes divergence. They mean to say that culture informs the differences between men and women. But this demonstrates that it's our design, it's our biology that obviously sets us apart. If you want to read more from that study, just check out the Telegraph for the full piece. Now next week is a big week. We've got Super Tuesday and the State of the Union a week from today, March 7th. So don't miss ne next week's show. It'll be an important conversation about the upcoming election. Well, that's going to do it for me. What'll it be next time? We will see. For now, go and be the salt and light you were meant to be, and we'll see you next time on We the Free.